0: This morning, as we continue our way through our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke, we will be reading about this ancient foe as he faces Jesus Christ. And we'll be reading this in Luke chapter 4, and we'll uh, be reading the verses 1 to 13. Luke chapter 4, the verses 1 to 13. And you'll be able to find that on page 1183 of your pew Bible. So Jesus has just finished being baptized. And heaven opened. And the Spirit descended like a dove in the form of a dove. And a voice said, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We read the Word of God. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in his hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ has just been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The heavens have opened and the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove on him, anointing him and marking him as special in the eyes of the people. To top it all off, a voice thunders from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is riding a wave of victory. He's filled with the Spirit and everyone can see that something incredible has happened. If it was you, wouldn't you go out preaching right away? You'd stand up and start speaking to the masses because they've just witnessed something incredible. Every ministry manual and sales gimmick would have you taking advantage of this as soon as possible. Ride the wave. It's a season of growth. But Jesus, in what later becomes true to form, instead chooses to disappear into the wilderness alone for over a month to fast. Now, there's a debate on what fasting means here. Some people argue that it means to eat only what the wilderness supplies. In that case, he would be eating nothing in the sense of eating no meals, having no regular food past his lips. But others argue that he genuinely ate nothing. There have been reports of hunger strikers who have lasted for more than 40 days in prison without food. So, it's possible. Whatever the case is, the Bible says, He was hungry. Almost seems like a bit of an understatement after 40 days of no food. He was at the very limits of his strength. For 40 days, he's absent from the public eye. But more than that, he fasts. What's happening here? This reference to 40 days should be our first clue that something special is going on here. The only other places where we find people fasting for 40 days are in the Old Testament. With Moses in Exodus 34, verse 28, and Elijah in 1 Kings 19, verse 8. These two being the very same two people who appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration later. Along with some of his disciples. Both of these periods of fasting were turning points for the people of God. In both of these cases, God was on the cusp of doing something radical for his people. And here today, we see that very same thing taking place. God is on the move. A new phase is about to begin. The ministry of John the Baptist is going to give way to the ministry of Christ. But before that's going to take place, something else must happen. Filled with the Spirit, he's brought face-to-face with the one who will hound him throughout the rest of his ministry. The one who will send demons into his path to try expose him or destroy him. The one who first wants to do everything in his power face-to-face to throw Jesus off his course. And so in our passage today, we'll see that the devil puts the Lord to the test. And we'll see, first of all, doubt countered with faith. False worship and true worship, and finally, the Word of God triumphant. The first question when we run across our passage is the question as to why we even have this narrative in Scripture in the first place. It's the same thing that we run into in Hebrews 4 verse verse 15. Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. Now, why do we need to know that Jesus was tempted? The reason for this is to give us the knowledge that the Lord shared in our temptation. If you were here last week, do you remember the genealogy that came right before that? You can glance over it right now. This genealogy that emphasizes so strongly that Jesus Christ is the son of Adam. Now, what was the reason for that? It was to highlight his humanity, to highlight that he shared in our flesh. Don't downplay his humanity. What Luke already pointed out with the genealogy is being brought to the foreground here. Jesus was fully man. He gets it. He knows what we have to deal with. And that comes out in three ways in particular over the course of this narrative. The first temptation that we run across is where the devil tries a full frontal assault. Jesus is at his weakest here. He's weak with hunger and therefore the devil just assumes he's weak, period. And so he says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the tempting way to read this is to immediately think, if, okay, he's suggesting that Jesus is not the Son of God. But the devil is actually more subtle than that. He's not calling into question the fact that Jesus is God's Son. We just read prior to this, Jesus is not so far removed from the Jordan River and heaven splitting open that such a thing would even be far removed from his mind. But what the devil is doing here is calling into question God's provision for Jesus. The devil is saying in this first temptation, if you are indeed the Son of God, like was said at the Jordan River, then certain things should be expected, shouldn't they? You're special. You deserve something special. The Father hasn't given you food, so make it yourself. Now, not only does this call into question God's provision for Jesus, it's also calling into question God's goodness and protection. After all, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the desert. It was the Spirit that led Jesus into the desert. And now the devil is trying to make Jesus doubt that the Spirit of God did the right thing. Or, failing that, doubt that the Spirit of God, having led him this far, will be able to take care of the rest of his needs as well. That he'll take care of Jesus' physical needs. This is an experience that we run into ourselves from time to time, isn't it? Sometimes we're led into dry and weary places in our lives. There are times in our lives when the Spirit of God seems Far away. We have a deep hunger, and that can lead us to wonder, where is God in this? Satan will seize this if he can. He'll try use it to lay hold of us. He'll catch us at our weakest hour, and he'll try to make us doubt the goodness of God and God's provision for us. But for Jesus, life is doing God's will, no matter what. He has his eyes set on the cross. He's looking ahead to to what is coming, to a glory that will far outweigh this world's suffering, and that will make it seem light and temporary in comparison with what is coming. And so he picks up his cross in the face of Jesus' temptation, in the face of Satan's temptation, and he moves Forward. In response to Satan's attack, he quotes scripture saying, Man shall not live by bread alone. This is an important principle for us to keep in mind as well. We're not just here on earth to keep body and soul together, we're here for a greater purpose. We're on earth to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. as this is the case, that puts a new spin on things. Now, our Lord is in a difficult time, and there's no question that He needs food. There's no question that He's suffering right now. But He's not living on bread alone. There's more to life than just keeping body and soul together. And when the devil tries to use his present difficulties to direct his heart and mind away from God, to doubt God's goodness and provision. He rejects that. When the devil tries to play on the limitations and the fears of Jesus' human nature, Jesus refuses to let the devil drive him to doubt the Father's provision. In dying for us on the cross, Jesus buys for us a better way to deal with our present difficulties and sorrows. He gives us a Father who is faithful. He gives us a Father who will provide for us through those difficult hours and despite those difficult hours. Most strongly through His Word. For those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, He has bought them adoption. Don't doubt this in your hour of need. Don't doubt your Heavenly Father's provision. In this hour, feed yourself with heavenly bread. You may go through difficult seasons in your life, but God is there for you through these seasons. Jesus has obtained for you a Father who is there, a Father who is present, not one who is absent when things seem difficult. Trust in His promises and look to His Word with special care during these seasons to find strength reading and reflecting on those promises and love which he bestows on us through Christ Jesus. Having failed in this frontal assault, the devil tries an attack based on misdirection. He takes Jesus up. The Gospel of Matthew tells us it's to the top of a mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, there's no such mountain in Israel that's capable of such a view. And so Luke makes it clear that it's a sort of special revelation, perhaps a vision of some kind. He puts a special emphasis on the fact that he showed him all of the kingdoms of the earth in an instant of time. How the devil is able to do this, we're not sure. But he's able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth in the span of a moment. He says, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. To make it even more pointed, pointed the original Greek highlights the fact that the devil will give it to Jesus in particular. He says, to you I will give this. Jesus, he's saying, all this can be yours. To you I'll give this. But the bait only comes before the condition of the contract. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. All you have to do is bend the knee just once to me and all the nations will worship you. Satan is playing off of the human desire for worship. Everyone hungers for worship. Everyone hungers for recognition. We want people to respect us, to honor us. We want people to like and admire us. And there's a resentment that sits in our hearts if people push us off of that pedestal of who we think we are. Which young man doesn't feel resentment if a young woman turns him down? Which person doesn't feel resentment if the people in the in-group don't pay attention to them, or maybe even laugh at them? Which person doesn't feel offended if, in our Bible study, we offer up an opinion which quickly gets flattened? We have a part of our heart that demands recognition, that demands respect, even though we may not have done anything to deserve it. For Christ, this would have been even more the case. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. And as God, he was truly deserving of all glory and worship. Would it not have been tempting for him to take the short view? To have people elevate him as an earthly king? To give in to the temptation that the devil was setting before him? This seemed like an easy way out. But what the devil put before him was rotten fruit. His offer was a mixture of truth and error, the thing that the most effective lies are made out of. What a surprise from the father of lies, isn't it? He certainly does wield great authority on earth, but it's not his to give. There is only one who is truly in control, and that one is God. As we read in Psalm 47, God is king over all of the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of God, of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. And He is greatly exalted. He alone reigns. Scripture has declared it. And this God demands our allegiance. The same is true for Satan's offers in our lives. Temptations can be sweet, especially when it's a question of dethroning God in our lives and putting ourselves up in that place. We get lots of quick satisfaction out of that, temporary satisfaction out of that. It seems like a desirable option. Otherwise, nobody would do it, would they? Whether it comes to our pride or adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, envy, revelries, and the like, Galatians 5, verse 19 to 21. All of this can seem sweet at the time, but they come with a terrible price. They come with a rotten fruit. They come with that little caveat from the prince of demons. Just bend the knee. Just bend the knee. Just hit your knees once. It's not a big deal. And I'll give you all of this. But it is a big deal. It's a defection from God. And bending the knee to the father of lies lies even for a momentary rush of sweetness on the lips will result in something that turns sour in your belly it can lead to something that has a lifetime of consequences because it's defecting it's going over from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdom of Satan and Christ knew this his response the one that he immediately gives in response to the devil's words, bring to mind the words of Psalm 119, verse 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He uses the word of God like a shield, immediately, having words that he had imprinted on his inner being. Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Is this something that you see yourself doing when temptations rear their heads in your lives, when they seem so sweet, that fruit dangling before you? Is there a sin that you struggle with, brothers and sisters? Try memorizing a verse of scripture that applies to it. When temptations arise, let it ring out in your mind in the very same way. Get behind me, Satan. Use the Word of God as your sword and shield, as the weapons of war against the Father of lies. Because the Spirit gives these words power. The Holy Spirit gives these words power. Jesus recognizes that to bend the knee in worship, even for a moment, is defection from God. And so He uses God's Word as a powerful weapon in response. A direct quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. Worship the Lord your God. And he adds the word alone to emphasize the force of what this passage of Scripture is teaching. He's saying, I will not betray my Father. Not for all of the kingdoms of the earth. Not for all of the treasures of sin. I will not. And so he has obtained for us true worship. In those times when we do fall away, when you do stumble in this dethroning God in your life, remember Christ and come in repentance, abandoning this false worship, finding forgiveness in Him, because He has gone through this very sem- same temptation and He has emerged victorious. He's paid for that fall. Into temptation as well. Turn to him in repentance, finding forgiveness, and returning to him in true worship once again. Having failed on two counts now, Satan has seen the pattern of what Christ is doing a temptation, a response of scripture. Temptation, a response of scripture. And so he tries to use Jesus' own weapons against him. He brings him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and tells him to throw himself off. His reasoning? It says in the Bible, his angels will catch you. You won't strike your foot against a stone. Don't you trust your father? Now, we should take note of the setting here because it adds quite a bit of force to the words of Satan, the deceiver. But before that, we should understand the reason behind it. Now, there are two places where this pinnacle could be found. The first is by the high temple gate, which is one of the highest physical points in the temple. The second, and the more likely one it seems, is the view from the royal porch at the temple's southeast corner. This stands at the top of a cliff overlooking the Kidron Valley. From here to the valley floor, it's a stomach-churning, 450-foot drop. The historian Josephus said that it made people dizzy to stand there and look down. It's the more likely point that's being referred to because it's the one that would have been most familiar to the people who were in the ancient world. They would have gone by, they would have looked over, and they would have seen the drop. The devil quotes two verses from Psalm 91 and says that it's on the basis of these two verses that Jesus should throw himself off if he truly does trust in God. But in light of that, if it was just a test of God's protection, wouldn't any cliff do? And why did he choose specifically the temple? Now some people have argued that the point of the temptation was That it was a public situation and people would have been there to see it and to honor Jesus. If God did indeed catch him, he would then be able to prove to the people that he had the power of God behind him. But considering that he just recently had heaven split open and God himself affirm his love for Jesus before all the people, this understanding of the passage is a little bit less likely. What is more likely is that this was indeed meant to be a test. If Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is truly righteous, then God will protect him. More than that, surely if God will rescue anyone, he'll do it at the temple where he's said to dwell, won't he? the devil is trying to press home the fact that if God won't hear you here in his very own temple, how can you trust him anywhere? Let go and let God. It should be noted that this is the exact opposite the way the phrase let go and let God should be used. This is the way it's sometimes abused in our evangelical culture today. Twice now, Jesus has responded with Scripture. So the devil, in turn, tries to use Scripture. And in using biblical language, he tries to turn Jesus against the Father. But mere use of biblical language and promises doesn't necessarily convey God's will, especially not if it's taken out of context. You need to compare Scripture with Scripture. You'll find this happens more often in the world today. People sometimes try to make use of Scripture to justify foolish or unwise decisions. They'll even use it in such a way that makes you think that they're letting God have control of the situation instead of themselves. In these situations, just keep in mind that the devil can quote Scripture too when it suits him. What such people are really doing is taking God's words out of context and then trying to use them to force him to take care of them on their terms. The devil encourages them to try to use God's word in this way. After all, this isn't the first time the devil has used that tactic, is it? Think back to the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Their plunge was caused by this very same serpent, twisting the words of a loving father who sought to warn his children about the consequences of sin. However, this time we have a better man on our side. Jesus Christ, both true and righteous man and true God. He saw it for what it was and he rejected it. There was no hesitation in his response. Even here, where the devil used Scripture, Christ didn't fall back on himself, or use a twisted view of the Bible to support his own agenda or doubt God, he could have said, yeah, you know what, I think you're right. Let's see if God will take care of me. I mean, if he takes care of me now, that means he'll take care of me later too. But he didn't do that. Rather, he compared Scripture with Scripture and revealed what Satan was saying for what it was, being presumptuous, being wicked. Why? The reason it was presumptuous was because it was artificial. If Jesus were to throw himself off of that pinnacle, the sole reason to do so would be to put God to the test. It would be to say... As the commentator Daryl Bach writes, I do not think that you're able to take care of me as son. So, to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my terms before something happens that's beyond my control and I just have to trust. It is sin. This version of let go and let God is sin. And so Jesus responds, and said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's a direct quote from Scripture, Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. Jesus demonstrated the lie and the twisting for what it was by comparing Scripture with Scripture. It wasn't just Jesus' interpretation against the equally valid interpretation that Satan held out. It was what Scripture truly meant in the face of a satanic distortion. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, Jesus revealed it for what it was. And he was victorious in the face of this third, most terrible of temptations, showing himself to be the better Adam, the one in whom all who believe in God could put their complete trust. Beloved, Jesus' faithfulness in the face of the devil's greatest attempts to draw him into sin Reveal his love for his father and his dedication to his cause to bring many children to glory. Luke 4, verse 13, is the only place in this entire gospel where direct temptation is successfully withstood, and Jesus is the one who succeeds. Don't underestimate the incredible nature of this reality. As we read earlier in Hebrews 4, Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. Now, sometimes we tend to emphasize the divinity of Jesus Christ to the point that we forget that he was not just fully God, but he was also fully man. Your sorrows, your temptations, you're not bringing them before a vengeful tyrant who has no conception of what you're dealing with, of what you're struggling with. When you pray, you're bringing your worries and your concerns and your sorrows before our interceding high priest. Jesus, who understands. But more than that, Jesus, who withstood temptation successfully on our behalf. This too was applied to us on the cross. This too, when we have faith, in Jesus Christ is fully paid for. For Christ himself, the Father was revealing a taste of what he would have to face in the years ahead, giving him courage in light of that. But it was more than that. We as a people are being shown a Christ who can bring even the arch enemy himself to his knees. At Christ's baptism, He was given the strength in His human nature to be able to face this. With our baptisms, we are given the assurance that this Lord is on our side and the Spirit lives in us. Let us put our faith in Him, being no more slaves to sin. Rather, when temptation rears its ugly head, let us flee to Christ who sets us free and who alone gives us the victory. And when we fall, let us find comfort that this too is fully paid for and fix our eyes once again on Jesus. Amen.